0: In our morning series, we have been for some months now walking through the book of 1 Timothy, and in it we've observed Paul teaching the church through Timothy uh, directly in regard to the nature, particularly and specifically of church ministers. We've also been able to walk through any number of elements of ministry and of of church uh, function as we uh, think of the men who are called to pray everywhere and for all men, uh, the women who are to be in uh, submission, uh, separation from ministers who are not approved care for the saints particularly the church's care for widows indeed and these sorts of things any number of practical exhortation for the function of the church Uh, first timothy does a tremendous job presenting the various aspects of church form and function but naturally as we go to some of the other epistles we're looking for different elements of teaching about the church so as we uh, spent time in first Corinthians several years ago we were studying their uh, various errors that can creep into the church and the nature of, um, of, of rebuke that Paul had to give for those various errors and the misuse of doctrines within the church. And we've studied through any number of epistles in any number of contexts that have helped us understand various aspects of church and ministry. And Philippians is no different. Philippians uh, is a, an epistle that focuses, if I were to summarize it, on church relationships. The relationship of one another in the body. And if I were to take everything that that Philippians relates to and I were to kind of boil it down, it would come down to to these two phrases. Strength through unity and power through purity. And that purity being purity in Christ or Christ-likeness. Perhaps Christ-likeness would have been a better word there than purity, but the idea of purity as I speak of it is Christ-likeness. The strength of the church is in its unity. But it needs to be the right kind of unity. Unity in Christ. Unity in obedience. Unity in Christ-likeness. Unity in seeking Christ together. We're stronger together than we are apart. But the power of that unity is, the, the power that that unity brings us is fully realized when we are seeking Christ together. We're not unified around philosophy. We're unified around Christ. We're not unified around function as much as we're unified around Christ. It is only when we are here that there will then be power that the church will be able to move as one and do the work that God has called us to do. And it's going to be my privilege to reflect these concepts to you over the course of the next several months. Today, as I always do, we start with a book sermon. And I actually have an outline for you, which I forgot, so I'll be getting you those outlines soon. Um, But we do begin with a book sermon, and then I always give you an outline. Those outlines are also online, so uh, the wonderful thing about that is that by the time, Lord willing, hopefully before I die, we'll have outlined, preached through every single book of the Bible, and if the Lord would bless to allow that to come to pass, then we'll have all of that resource uh, online indefinitely. But the benefit of a book sermon is that we're able to take the concepts of a book, give us a broad sweeping understanding of them, so that before we get into that nitty gritty, we, we remember where the book, what the book is doing and what it's trying to tell us. Context is so important to the Bible. Context is so important to any particular verse that we're studying in the Bible. We never want to strip a verse from its context. And in fact, we're going to see next week, I'm going to get into a a somewhat detailed message uh, on Philippians 1, verse six, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to present to you why in context, I don't necessarily think it means what most of us think it means. That's coming up next week. And so context is very, very important and getting a broad overview of the book and understanding a general idea of what the book is saying to us helps keep us focused so that when we start to get a little confused and wonder maybe what's going on within the book, we take a step back, we look at what's happening as a whole in the book, we look at why, why it was written, we look at what's going on, and then maybe it'll help us have the context necessary to understand a little bit better what's going on in the details. So we give you its content and its overall message, and I'll do that for Philippians this evening. So the Bible says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. The book of Philippians was written by Paul and addressed by Paul and Timothy to the saints, the bishops, and the deacons in Philippi. Paul had met the Philippians during his second missionary journey, as we would often call it. The Bible tells us that along, uh, w- within this second missionary journey, we find it in Acts chapter 15, verses 36, that, uh, verse 36 and following, that they were sent on this second journey. Uh, the year is 51 to 52 AD, as best we can tell. Paul and Barnabas desired, after a couple of years since their first journey, where they went throughout the region of Galatia, and within that region of Galatia, they they planted several churches, saw many people saved, and they desired to go back to those churches to affirm their ministries, to see how things were going, and such. But there was a very sharp contention between Paul and Barnabas, if you recall from the scriptures, uh, and the contention surrounded this young man named John Mark. And Mark had gone with them on the first journey but had at some point apparently abandoned them along the way. He had gone back home. He abandoned them on their efforts and Paul had not forgotten this and Paul was not very comfortable. He was not willing, in fact, at all with having Mark on them for a second journey. Barnabas, however, was determined that Mark should come. And there was a very sharp contention between Paul and Barnabas in this matter, so sharp in fact, that Paul and Barnabas parted ways. The scriptures tell us that Barnabas took Mark and they departed to the island of Cyprus, where they had planted a church. And then Paul took a man named Silas and he traveled into Galatia confirming those churches. Uh, the Bible tells us that they stopped in Tarsus, which of course is where Paul grew up, and then they moved on to Derby and Lystra. And there, when they were in Derby and Lystra, they met a young man who they had heard about uh, within that region named Timotheus. Now we talked about Timothy quite a bit at the beginning of 1 Timothy and how Paul met him and the reputation that Timothy had had. And so Paul, hearing of this man and then meeting him and, um, and, and becoming acquainted with him, uh, seeks to take him with them on their journey. So Timothy joins them there in Derby and Lystra at the beginning of this journey. They ended up, uh, as they continued, in the city of Troas, which is in the west area of what we now call Turkey. And there, Paul received a vision, which we often call the Macedonian call. A vision of a man in Macedonia calling him over saying, come and and tell us the gospel. So immediately they crossed over, and they crossed over uh, the Aegean Sea. They stopped first in that little island there. Uh, Samothrace, and then they began in Neapolis. We don't know anything about their time in Samothrace or Neapolis, but we do then find much about their time in Philippi. This was their first big stop along the way. It was the first major city that they stopped in in this region of Macedonia. Philippi was the chief city of that region. It was a large city. It was a wealthy city. It was an influential city. And there, they met a woman named Lydia. And Lydia was the first person who was saved and baptized by Paul in Macedonia. She was a dyer of purple. Many things would happen in the city of Philippi. They came into contact with a damsel who was possessed with a spirit of divination. Perhaps you remember that account. She was monetized by a group of men who were made rich off of her because of this spirit of divination. And this woman followed Paul throughout the city for many days. And as she would follow Paul and Silas, she proclaimed them to be the servants of the Most High God. And while her words were correct, they were indeed servants of the Most High God. The source of those words, coming from a demonically possessed woman, brought both grief and shame to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So after a manner of time, Paul cast this demon out of her, And of course, this deeply angered her managers who could no longer get rich off of her because she no longer had this spirit of divination within her. Acts 16 records thus that they were thrown in prison. In prison, they were sitting at midnight singing, praising the Lord. When the earth shook, the prison doors were open, and the shackles fell off the prisoners. The Philippian jailer, Certain that the prisoners had escaped and understanding that because the prisoners had escaped, his life would be forfeit. Was going to kill himself, take his own life. When Paul stopped him, assuring him that they all remained. In light of this, the jailer cried out in Acts 16, verses 30 and 31, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The Bible said, and they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. The jailer then washed their wounds. He was baptized and he brought them into his home. So imagine the foundation of this church. You have this cellar dyer of purple. You have the household of a Roman jailer. In some ways a very strong and influential but diverse beginning to this church in Philippi. Paul really made his mark on that church and as we'll see throughout the book of Philippians it seems as though Timothy did too. Hinted at by the very fact that Paul adds Timothy to the greeting within this epistle. Now, as Paul writes this epistle to the Philippians, he is now imprisoned again, likely in Rome, it being some 10 years later. Whereas the first journey was 50 to 51 AD, we're likely now in 60 to 62 AD. The Church of Philippi hears of Paul's state. Philippians 2.25 indicates that they send a man named Epaphroditus from their church for the sake of personally encouraging Paul, expressing the church's love to him, and by giving him a measure of financial support. It's one of those things about various times and cultures. There have been, there are any number of cultures where when a person is arrested, they receive nothing in jail. And if their family does not bring them money, bring them food, bring them clothing, bring them support, they simply don't get anything. And it's quite possible that at the very least, Paul was getting extremely meager and bare bones uh, provisions. And so for the Philippian church to help him in this regard would have been tremendously helpful in a number of ways as to his continued uh, health and wellness. Throughout the epistle we read of Paul's very grateful heart for them. This is, in fact, one of the primary reasons why Paul wrote the epistle. We're going to see unity. We're going to see this idea of Christ-likeness and purity. But really, Paul writes this letter to thank them and to show his love for them for all of the, the ways that they have remembered and blessed him. See, this was not the only time the Church of Philippi had done this for him. As a matter of fact, we know of at least three other recorded times in Scripture where the church of Philippi specifically helped Paul in a time of need. We read of the, one of these in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9. Paul writes, And when I was present with you, Paul writing to the Corinthian church here, When I was present with you and wanted, he, he lacked what he needed, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied and in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. So Paul acknowledges that there were some men sent from Macedonia. It does not explicitly say, say Philippi. We would take a leap of interpretive faith here. Um, but he says that men from Macedonia came and helped me so that I would not have to be chargeable to you. And this was one of Paul's major points in, in this He was actually leading up here to exhorting that church to be very open-handed and giving to the church at Jerusalem. And one of the things he said is that he thought it would be deeply detrimental to the believers at that time if he actually was supported by the church in Corinth, whether that be because of their carnality or whether that be because perhaps they had a lot of, um, a lot of false teachers in the area. And so the minute that a man started, started asking for money in the name of God, um, they would become extremely suspicious. We don't exactly know what it is. We, we could relate it to areas of our own, though, where those sorts of things might happen, right? where you go into a particular area and they've been fleeced by a number of false teachers and it would simply not be advantageous to your ministry to accept the right that a minister might have to be provided for by the people, right? Uh, We do this with many missionaries. Uh, This is why many missionaries are supported on the field. Uh, It's not necessarily because they could not plant a church and be supported by those who are indigenous, but it might very well be that those indigenous people uh, would become deeply skeptical of a ministry that is asking for support or money for them, right? Th- this, this is not necessarily uncommon. So Paul said this, that, that he went to Corinth and that people from Macedonia came down to Corinth, which was in Achaia, a different region, specifically to help him so that he would not have to burden the church there. We also read it in Philippians 4, verses 15 and 16. Of course, we'll get there in a couple of months, but he says this in Philippians 4. He says, Now ye Philippians know also, that in the beginning of the Gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. A- another reason why that little leap of interpretive faith in Second Corinthians is pr- fairly sound. He says, no other church helped me but you, in Macedonia. Verse 16, for even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. So he writes in this last chapter of Philippians, that the church at Philippi was the only church to send to him. And he specifically mentions, in this case, Thessalonica. And he mentions that once and again, that by implication being twice, once and again, once in another time, they sent unto his necessity. Now, whether this is an idiom, so that that means many, many times, or whether this is literal, which would literally mean two times, they sent multiple times to him in his times of need. So we know that the Church of Philippi was uniquely generous. And more than just uniquely generous, we understand that the Church of Philippi had a unique burden for the Apostle Paul and for the ministry of the Apostle Paul, so that we can say that throughout this 10-year span, it seems as though Paul is reflecting in in his writings to them a, a confidence that they have on any number of occasions sent money to help him in time of need. And it is unto this church that Paul writes with the bishops and deacons and adds to the salutation, as we've mentioned, Timotheus, who would still have been fairly new to the ministry when they got to Philippi for the first time, but obviously in some way, shape, or form commended himself deeply to their hearts. And Paul then continues in his exhortation with expressions of thanksgiving and of confidence and of expectation as it relates to the continued sanctification and spiritual growth of the church of Philippi. But we also see expressed here, as we will come to know when we study more thoroughly, very, very personal thanksgiving. This church has been very good, uniquely good to Paul. And he is personally, not just ministerially, thankful for that body of believers so that he will recollect that anytime he is praying through the churches and he is brought into remembrance of them, there is a unique Thanksgiving that wells up in his hearts for them. And Paul expresses confidence in them that Christ will continue to work in them and work through them. And finally, then expresses a desire to be with them that they might abound. So the Bible says in verses 9 through 11, and this I pray that your love may yet abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment that ye may approve things which are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. These verses express the desire of Paul for the church. In many ways, we might say that this is what Paul is going to be driving at as he seeks unto unity. The reason why he wants this unity and this Christ-likeness, this purity, is that they might abound more and more in this knowledge and in this judgment, that the church would increase in this discerning knowledge, that they would in interaction be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. And all of this, as as would be entirely expected of the spiritual, would be an outworking of being filled with the fruit of righteousness by Jesus Christ and unto his praise. I don't know that we can find a better perspective from which to place our expectations as it relates to the epistle. I don't know that we can find a better perspective on what God wants a church to be Then this right here as far as our relationships one to another and all of this was intended by Paul to comfort the church see because they sent to Epaphroditus to him and the church obviously was very concerned they were concerned for his well-being and he wants to comfort them in return In many ways, the whole epistle is intended to take the natural sorrow and concern that the church felt for Paul's sake and turn it into motivation for them to keep up the fight. Paul is fighting. He's fighting the fight, the good fight. He's, He's continuing to share the gospel. And his desire is that they would also continue to share the gospel, that they would also be faithful to the Lord. Follow Paul's example. And he expresses this confidence in verses 12 through 14. But I would, ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So these words which we have just read begin the expressions of confidence. That would continue all the way to verse 30. Verse 30 of Philippians chapter 1. Verses 12 through 30 represent words of comfort and determination that though he is not where he would choose to be, his condition is bringing about the furtherance of the gospel and as long as the gospel is furthered, he's not going to complain. And to that end, he's content. Even as Paul would express among those who would disingenuously preach the gospel for the sake of causing Paul to suffer more, He will be content as long as the gospel is preached. For as he would say in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Unless we be tempted to assume that this contentment implies that Paul was not in a state of sorrow, Paul then speaks in verses 22 to 24 about his desire to go home, to go to heaven. He says, I want to go to heaven, but it's best for me to stay here for your sakes. And such sentiments again compel Paul to a desire that this church would be faithful, that the investment that he has put into them at whatever cost to himself would bear necessary fruit, that they would be bold, that they would be prepared, that they would be Christ-like. So Paul would say in verses 27 and 28, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Live in a manner that becomes the testimony of the gospel. Stand fast, one spirit, one mind, striving together. Unity. Christ-like unity. That's the call. The concept of unity being central to this epistle. Unity around truth, singleness of mind in their endeavor to live and to share the gospel. And this concept takes center stage in chapter 2. It begins with another direct call for the church to be like minded, having the same love, being of one accord being of one mind. And this mind is to be achieved through the deepest essence of personal humility and Christ-like purity. That as God's people live in lowliness of mind, each esteeming other better than themselves and combining this determination with that of chapter 1, verse 27, that they would let their conversation be as becometh the gospel of Christ. This would combine unto an effect of Power in the church. And that because it conforms to the design of God. And where God's design is accomplished, God's power is recognized. Now, naturally, the model for this is Jesus Christ Himself. And that's what we find in verses 5 through 8 an expression of the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you. That though Christ was equal with God, He chose to humble Himself and become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And Paul makes it very clear that this determination, this sacrifice is not without reward, is it? Much to the contrary, in verses nine through 11, Christ's exaltation was the result of his humiliation. So that it echoes the words of James, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Paul, to this end, makes a request of them in chapter two, verse 14. Think that request is going to have something to do with unity yes do all things without murmurings and disputings don't no infighting humility no bickering no squabbling find unity find it in Christ come together have a humble mind serve one another love one another submit one to another It is here at the least, if not earlier, and I believe we've seen it earlier, that we begin to recognize this pattern that helps us understand what Paul is forging in these verses. An essential link between Christ's like-mindedness and this, this unity idea through humility within the body and the effectiveness of the body of Christ as a witness to the Gospel. He says, if you're going to be a partner with me in the Gospel, you are going to have to be unified. If you're going to have power to reach the lost for Christ, you are going to have to be like-minded in Christ. You're going to have to reflect Christ. Paul made the connection in chapter 1, verses 27 and 29. He makes it again here in chapter 2, so that as Paul calls for the church to do all things without murmurings and disputings, he then says in verses 15 and 16, Why? What's the point of doing things without murmurings and disputings? What is the end goal of that unity? That ye may be blameless and harmless. The sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. It is not just your individual testimony among your neighbors and among those in Buffalo that is going to make the difference as to whether or not we win people to Christ. It is our corporate testimony that can make a difference. It is not just your individual walk with the Lord by which you will find the power to be effective in the gospel. It is our corporate testimony that will bring about the power and the blessing of the Lord to, the, to, to, to give an impact to the gospel, to have us shine as lights in the world. Holding forth, verse 16, the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Unity brings testimony. But notice the kind of unity. A unity coupled with Christ-likeness where the power of the gospel can be seen through Christ's church. This then causes Paul's heart to drift back toward this individual church telling them in verse 19 that it is his intention if the Lord should will it that he would soon send Timothy unto them and that through Timothy he'd be able to know better their state their condition, and that through Timothy, being a man of great like-mindedness, naturally knowing Paul's mind, he'd be able to help shore up whatever might be lacking in them. Paul then also mentions Epaphroditus, of whom he says in verse 25, Yet I suppose it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, and companion in labor, and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. This verse seems to imply that Epaphroditus was that man who the Philippians sent to Paul. He was their messenger, right, to Paul. He was the one that they sent to minister to his wants, and he did so. And this verse uh, gives a flavor of Paul very reluctantly sending him back. I suppose I must also send you back your guy, but I don't want to because he was such a blessing to me. He knows, he acknowledges that he, he, he should do this, but he says, I really, really don't want to. And the reason for Epaphroditus' delay had been that he apparently had become very ill. Verse 27 tells us, sick nigh unto death, Paul said, but God had mercy on him and he was able to make a full recovery. Paul thus commended him back to his own church with care and desire that he would be received with gladness. And this ends chapter 2. Paul then steps in a manner of speaking in chapter 3 into his final topic, though it will span a portion of scripture. And the essence of Paul's exhortation really is a warning, both against the nature of false teaching as it relates to those who would seek to have any confidence in their works, and the temptation within our own hearts to have confidence in our works. So Paul writes in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3 Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. It is so easy, especially in the church, to get caught up in actions, in doing. These three warnings against dogs and evil workers and concision, these are all speaking of different people, different, uh, um, different people groups who would reflect some measure of authority whereby they, they, they would uh, seek to pose uh, some... Biblical or spiritual authority in the church. And each one, in turn, defined their spiritual success or their spiritual distinction on some element of carnality, some element of externality, rather than elements of the Spirit. But the fact of the matter is, these things we do on a broad level, the things we wear, the things we watch, or the things we listen to, or the places we go, In many ways, these define a manner of thinking, but they aren't exclusive to believers, are they? You're not only going to find standards as it relates to dress or as it relates to uh, entertainment or as it relates to words, speech, among believers. You're going to find it in many of the cults the Latter-day Saints, the Jehovah's Witness, you're going to find it even among various pagan groups. That's not the deepest element of our distinction, is it? These are important to us. They are beneficial to us. But any number of sects, any number of cults, any number of cultures who have assimilated these attributes into their lives, hoping that by doing so they're pleasing God, without ever coming to a realization that only Jesus can please God, and only us in Christ can please God, they can do those things too. So Paul says, beware of those, though they might look a certain way, or though though they might, as Colossians would tell us, have a measure of wisdom in will worship and in denial of the flesh. Paul says, don't place any confidence in the flesh. Moral flesh or immoral flesh, don't place your confidence in it. It's an important lesson that he gives to that church. And Paul then spends all of his time speaking about moral fleshly acts, right? He goes on in chapter 3 to speak of his own journey out of Pharisaism of his success in aligning with the law and the moral expectations of the law. But the call is that in the spirit, the marks of spirituality, the disposition and and, and the determination, that mind of Christ from chapter 2, that that would be our distinction. You want to reach the lost for Christ? It's not going to be your standards that do it. It's going to be Christ in you that does it. So Paul says that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees that he was blameless as touching the law. But then he found Christ. And he says in verse 7, what things were gained to me, those things that he did in the flesh, moral though they were, by which he sought to have some measure of gain in society, some measure of gain before God, he said, those I counted loss for Christ. And he recognized that confidence in his ability to keep the law using his own fleshly disciplines and capacities as a measuring stick for his relationship with God was wholly inconsistent with how God actually worked with his relationship with Jesus Christ and so Paul had to make a choice does he put his confidence in his discipline and in his standards and in his morality in his capacity to align with external moral expectations, or does he put his confidence in Christ? Because he couldn't have it both ways. And he chose Christ, and this is very important. Naturally, we'll talk more about this when we get there. I want to just jump ahead and get there because it's such a fun passage. But we'll take our time. But when Paul says, I count all things but loss, he's talking about all things, of course. But within the context, the specific things that he mentions are not greed, or lust, or anger. The specific things he's talking about is his persuasion and his effort to define his relationship with God as an outworking of his own moral efforts. He's talking about his confidence in his discipline and in his moral standards and speaks to the mindset surrounding them. Not the choices themselves, mind you, but the mindset, the confidence that he was placing in those choices, in those standards, as standing in fundamental contradiction and even competition with the mind of Christ that would seek to be forged within him. In verse 12, Paul admits that he had not attained fully unto his desires in this regard, It's an aspirational goal. Indeed, none on this side of eternity will ever attain fully unto this goal. But he says, I'm gonna strive for it. I'm gonna follow after it. Not some fleshly measure of morality. And again, none of this says that the morality was wrong by any means, right? It's simply not the standard. And I wonder if there was a little bit of that creeping into the church in Philippi. I wonder if that's why Paul is emphasizing unity and then warning them against these men that would teach to have confidence in some measure of the flesh. I wonder if that's what was happening. And Paul was trying to cut off this danger of moralizers in a similar way that he had to do in Colossians and to Galatians and uh, any number of times within his ministry where somebody would begin teaching and they'd start to shade the scriptures and make people think that they could please God simply through some measure of external moral conformity. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You want unity. Don't be unified in external conformity. Be unified in in the mind of Christ. So Paul calls them to have that same mind saying in verse 15 of chapter 3 let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded and if any if in anything ye be otherwise minded ye there plural that's them right god shall reveal even this unto you search it out make sure that you're like minded To find our strength in a unity driven by humility unto the mind of Christ, unto a purity and a Christ-likeness. No confidence in ourselves, no confidence in our flesh, but confidence in Christ. Unto the purification of our actions and our deportment. That we might be a testimony of Christ to the world around us. That we might live in the joy and the blessedness of like-mindedness. For our conversation, Paul would say in chapter three, verse 20, is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our conversation is not on this earth. It's in heaven. And this church is our hope, our joyful and earnest expectation of that which is to come. Now Paul is speaking all of these things conceptually and they are important conceptually, but they also had a definitive target in the lives of believers in the church of Philippi. It would seem as though there was a measure of disunity that had bubbled up within the church. Epaphroditus no doubt was the one to make Paul aware of this disunity. When he came, he delivered the money. He ministered to Paul's needs. Paul says, how's the church going? Epaphroditus says, well, good things are happening, but there's also some problems. There's some disunity. And we don't know the ins and outs. Maybe there was this, maybe Epaphroditus said, hey, you know, there's this this Judaizer, this guy who has come and he's uh, exhorting them to put their confidence in the flesh. And this is causing some contention. And Paul says, Well, I guess I need, to write, I need to write and remind them about the mind of Christ. And he said, And then there's also this problem between Yodius and Syntyche. And these are two women in the church. And Paul would write to them, and he says, I beseech Yodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow. Help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. It's interesting, he says, I entreat thee, not ye, which means he's speaking to a singular person here who he calls his true yoke fellow. We'll explore who that might be as we get there. And so he writes specifically to these women and and calls them unto the same mind. We don't know what the contention was. And they will find, as they root their minds in faithful confidence and determined purity, that they will find that like-mindedness. So then Paul would exhort the whole church in verse 8, Finally, brethren, Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. You think with your mind, right? What is it? What is the context of like-mindedness? Right here. Christ-likeness, the mind of Christ, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Humility, serving one another, uh, placing one above another, uh, thinking on the things of, of others more than yourself, thinking of those things which are right and honest and pure and just one before another. We fill our mind with these things. We direct our intention toward these things. We are thus unified in this like-mindedness that is formed into Christ-likeness, and that brings about purity within us that forms the power and the effectiveness and the testimony whereby we can shine as lights in the world. Now we've mentioned already that this book is somewhat of a thank you. And it's bookended by thank yous. I believe the beginning is is very thank you heavy and the end is very thank you heavy. We see this very clearly in our conclusion In chapter 4, verse 10, Paul expresses his thanksgiving to the church for their care for him, that they've often sent money to meet his direct needs. We already referenced that a little bit. And rejoicing in the ways that God has used them to bless him and in the sure rewards that the Lord will give them one day for their obedience. So he says in verse 18, But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. He says, by virtue of your generosity, Paul found himself in a place of fullness, having that which is necessary and beyond, and he was thankful to them for that. And then he closes the epistle, naturally saluting the saints, wishing grace upon them. And this is our broad overview of the nature of this letter. There is much by God's grace, which we will learn over the course of the next couple of months. But let us not stray too far from our themes. And we won't stray too far from these themes. The theme of unity, like-mindedness. And the theme of Christ-likeness, purity. That there is strength in the church through unity. And there is power unto the gospel, unto testimony in the church, through Christ-likeness, through Christ-like purity. Intentional purity, not placing our confidence in the flesh, not using the flesh or fleshly, th- fleshly uh, uh, marks as the gauge of purity, but rather by placing our love and our loyalty upon Christ's finished work, and then by seeking unto the fruit of Christ's teaching. Now we're going to apply broadly this evening, then we'll focus in, of course, As we walk through week by week and I do desire as we apply broadly to talk about these two concepts unity and purity the application has four points in a manner of speaking but it's really a singular thought and you'll notice that by the ellipses the strength of the church lies in its unity the power of the church lies in its purity but unity without purity is empty conformity and purity without unity strips the church of testimony That's the total thought. Let's think through it phrase by phrase. The strength of the church lies in its unity, like-mindedness in Christ, not that you have assimilated to my mind. We mentioned this afternoon as we were talking uh, in our fellowship time at our dinner on the grounds uh, that there is a tendency, and this is natural, for the church to begin to pick up some of the spiritual corks or distinctions of their pastor. Um, that there is a natural draw to a church where you're like-minded with the pastor, and then there is a natural rubbing off of the pastor. I've noticed it. I notice it in the way people pray. Um, how you prayed when you began coming here and how you pray now, and it bears the marks of the fact that you hear pastor pray a lot, don't you? I pray I pray publicly a lot in the church. You hear me pray a lot, um, and, and the, your prayers, Some of your prayers bear the marks of my manner of prayer. This is just the way it goes when you have leadership. My children pray like me because I'm their dad. Uh, The church bears some of the marks of my praying because I'm your pastor. And there's these things, but unity, proper unity in the church is not that you think like me. Proper unity in the church is not that I think like you proper unity in the church is that we both think like Christ that I'm thinking what you're thinking not because you're thinking like me or I'm thinking like you but I'm thinking what you're thinking because we're both on Christ's plane of thinking we're not caught up in our own agenda we're not lost in our own priorities we don't trust our own judgments but that we are as a body devoted to Christ's way Christ's intent, Christ's priorities, Christ's judgment. And that means we've got to be humble, doesn't it? Because there are times where I'm not going to have the mind of Christ, and you are, and that's going to be demonstratively obvious to me and I need to change. And there are going to be times where I have the mind of Christ and you don't, and that's going to be demonstrably obvious to you and you need to change. And there are going to be times where neither one of us is fully sure of what the mind of Christ is and we're going to have to come together in humility and pray and seek to the mind of Christ and both be willing to change. And if one of us subverts this process by standing our ground and thinking what we're going to think and be what we're going to be, then we will not be able to find unity. Even if one of us comes around to the other's way of thinking There's no unity if we haven't come around to Christ's way of thinking. True unity, good unity, right unity, godly unity. And this is where the church finds its strength. Our capacity to hold the line in the day of temptation. Our capacity to endure in the day of trial. These things come from the strength of its unified determination unto the mind of Christ. And if our church does not have this, if our church is so busy pursuing each of our own standards or our own way or our own line of thinking, our own aspirations, that we fail to have this spiritual unity, then we as a church will lack the fundamental foundation either to stand in the day of adversity or as we'll see in a moment, also to have the distinction necessary to shine as lights in the world. So we'll see the call again. Remember all the places we've seen it. Chapter 2, verse 2. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if anything, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, whereunto we have already Already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Chapter 4, verse 2. I beseech Yodius and Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. The call is clear. We're going to pursue it within the scope of this book. Second point. The strength of the church lies in its unity. The power of the church lies in its purity. Again, you can impose the word Christ likeness there. I think that's probably a better word, more clear. This purity, this Christ-likeness undergirds our unity. It is purity into which our unity directs us. And only as this unity is rooted in purity does the church become exactly what God intends it to be, a testimony to the world around us. And not just a testimony to the world around us, but may I, may I ever keep this before our minds, a testimony to the world, to the children who have not come to Christ yet, or to those who are forming within themselves their convictions. Where does the power come from to convince our children of the way? It's not going to come through us conforming to an external standard. It's going to come from us reflecting such power and love in the reality of Christ and in the like-mindedness and the unity that comes through following Christ that there will be an unmistakable testimony of truth to our children. And this testimony will be without contradiction and without division if we're seeking unity and purity, a conduit for others to see Christ's redemptive work. So we see it again several times. Chapter 1, verse 27, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ chapter 2 verses 15 and 16, that ye may be blameless and harmless the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye sign his lights in the world holding forth the word of life. We see it in chapter 3 verses 15 and 16. I just read those to you That same idea. We see it in chapter 4, verse 5. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Of course, we see it in chapter 4, verse 8. I don't have that one up here. But that exhortation to think on those things which are pure and lovely and virtuous and just. Unified into purity. Unified through minds that are seeking Christ-likeness. And in this we are thus blameless and harmless among whom we're called to shine. This doesn't work very well where there's contention, where there's murmuring, where we have our own priorities and our own goals. When we spend so much time in opposition, one with another, that we have no time to shine. And so we need unity, but we need purity. Unity will be our strength. Purity will be our power. Unity without purity is empty conformity. The strength of the church lies in its unity. The power of the church lies in its purity, but unity without purity is empty conformity. unity around anything other than Christ is simply religion, right? This is kind of that idea in Romans three or Philippians three, where Paul speaks of not putting his confidence in the flesh. Don't unify around some fleshly system, unify around Christ. This herd mentality, this simple conformity, the need to bend ourselves to a common idea for the sake of some measure of feeling camaraderie, some sense of belonging—and these things are not necessarily bad. Camaraderie and belonging; these are blessed benefits of having a community. But they have no profit beyond this life if they're not found in, if that unity is not found in Christ's likeness. The church and the world have plenty of empty conformity, don't they? You want to, you want to seek empty conformity? There's plenty of places you can find it. The church is called to be something more. The power of Christ through his church is found in substantive conformity. Unity, not to one another, but to Christ. The mind of Christ. To count all things but loss. Seeking others at the expense of ourselves, seeking unto the thoughts of virtue and of peace, humbling ourselves before one another. We want unity. But we don't just want any unity in the church. I want unity in this church. I've been praying for it for a while, really since I've really been dedicating myself to studying Philippians. Uh, My my prayer, if you've noticed, my prayers have changed a little bit. Uh, that, That often happens when I'm studying something new and the Lord's working on me in some way. We want unity in this church. And I think that we have some steps to take to get to full unity among the brethren. But it can't just be unity among something external. That's just empty conformity. That's not going to have any power. That's not going to have any distinction. It's not going to be any different from any other club, social club in this world. We need unity with purity, with Christ-likeness, if we're going to have that power. Finally, this final point, this last idea. Purity without unity strips the church of testimony. So the strength of the church lies in unity, in its unity. The power of the church lies in its purity. But unity without purity is empty conformity. And purity without unity strips the church of testimony. If we fall out of balance, if we all seek to our understanding of Christ in our own way. If we're all seeking unto some measure of purity, but we are not agree- in agreement as to seeking Christ into that into that that purity, into the unity of that purity. If we're we're just ready to do our own thing and go our own way and not humble ourselves one before another and say, "You know what? I'm just going to I'm just gonna just gonna throw out all of these other people and just do my own thing, and I'll seek to the Lord my own way, and I'll be pure in myself, and I'm not gonna worry about the church, and I'm just gonna do it my way. And if we reflect an unwillingness to do the work necessary to strive for the same mind, you know that's work, isn't it? That's hard work. Purity, Christ likeness in ourselves is hard work. It's hard work seeking unto sanctification. It's hard work positioning ourselves in such a way as to love the Lord and love one another. But you know what also is hard? Is trying to do that in a unified manner as a church. To seek unto the same mind in a, in a, in a, as a coherent, cohesive whole. That's hard work too. And you might say, well, you know, let's just kind of, I mean, we can all love the Lord, but it's a lot of work to, to have to bring it together well, the question is this. If we don't strive unto the same mind, to a unity of purpose and of vision and of likeness, well, then we're little more than kind of disembodied parts, right? What good is a foot if it has no body to propel? What good is a fully functioning eye if it has no body to navigate for? What good is a fully functioning hand if it has no body to grab things for? What good is a fully functioning mouth if it has no body to speak for? We've got to be together in this if we're going to have strength. And we've got to be together under the right things if we're going to have power. How can the body of Christ shine to the world if it cannot even function as one body? And it is unto this end that we will strive in our time together in Philippians. What I believe to be a very timely message for this time and this place, and an important foundation for further growth within our body, that we at Legacy Baptist Church might be a church that has strength through unity, power through purity, through likeness, unto a furtherance of the gospel, both within and without our body.